is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Dan Fitzgerald and welcome to the Monday edition of the Country Hour. Thanks a lot for your company. Well, there's been some big funding announcements in upgrades to the NBN. Uh, soon on the program you'll hear from a pastoralist all about what better internet means for them. If we really want to get serious about developing our industries and attracting people to remote and very remote regions, we need to ensure that our connectivity is always as best it can be. The US has just struck a new deal to export beef to Japan. What are the trade implications for Australia's beef industry? We'll be taking a look at that. And Indigenous rangers in Arnhem Land have had a very successful season collecting crocodile eggs out on the floodplains. Like one day we went in and it was like one and the next one, two, three, like, and we keep walking and we found more and more. And we couldn't believe it, like they're all in the same area where we locate the one first, yeah. Yeah, all those stories and plenty more to come on the Country Hour today. And we will be checking in with the Weather Bureau at our usual time at five past one. So if you have any questions for the Bureau, you can get in now and send us a text on 0487 99 But first up today, the two major gas companies operating in the Beedaloo Basin, Origin Energy and Santoth, both fronted a Senate inquiry into federal government funding for fracking in the Beedaloo on Friday after initially being reluctant to do so. Uh, this inquiry is looking into the $50 million grants program for gas companies to speed up exploration wells in the Beedaloo. Uh, so both Santos and Origin, uh, they admitted under questioning from Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young uh, that they actually didn't need that funding any funding from the federal government. Um, here's the senator uh, asking questions of Santos's Tracy Winters. So the industry's doing pretty well. Origin doesn't need the grant funding to get wells drilled. Santos doesn't need it. So um, why are we wasting $50, billion, $50 million of taxpayers' money on this stuff? Um, Senator Hanson-Young, as, as I said before, I think the Australian government's intention was to uh, accelerate the gaining of knowledge about that basin because of energy security uh, issues. And of course, in it, so it's not about uh, helping the oil and gas companies, it's about um, a much more strategic issue, which is one of energy security in the long term for Australians and the region. Um, Santos and Origin, of course, you and you, you've both spoken about this in your opening statements. Um, uh, understand the need to uh, reduce carbon pollution and transition. And why are we sinking this amount of taxpayers' money into an industry uh, that will have to phase out? Uh, Senator Hanson Young. 
in 2050, um, in the IE, even in the IEA's NZE scenario, the world will still be using natural gas, and we want that natural gas to come from to, to have uh, to come from countries that have strong regulatory re regimes in place, and uh, and that do protect the environment and try to reduce emissions as they're. How, how do uh, you reduce emissions it? while creating pollution? Um, Senator Hanson Young, you know, in Santos's case, we're investing heavily in carbon capture and storage, which is which is a means. Which of, is a furphy. No, which safely and it, there are 27 operational projects around the world today storing nearly 40 million tonnes. So it is not true to say that it is an unproven technology. It is a proven technology. We've made a final investment decision on a 1.7 million tonne per annum project in South Australia's uh, Cooper Basin and when that's up and running in just a couple of years time uh, it, you know, again it will be permanently storing 1.7 million tonnes of CO2 to every year. That is Tracy Winters from gas company Santos. Now, Origins Energy's representative uh, was questioned over that company's dealings with Russian oligarch Victor Vexelberg, who has been sanctioned by the Australian government as part of its response to the war in Ukraine. Uh, Victor Vexelberg, he has an interest in Falcon Oil and Gas, a company that has a joint venture with Origin in its Beetaloo exploration. But Tim O'Grady's Tim O'Grady from Origin, he said that the Russian businessman, he has no import in Origin's operations. If I can make another important point, I think, Senator, uh, very clear, um, the, the Beetaloo project, uh, which we've been developing with Falcon uh, for the last um, eight years, is a development project. Um, so the, the Beetaloo project um, has not generated any revenue and has not returned a cent of revenue to any of the joint venture partners or shareholders through them. And I think importantly, it's not going to produce a cent of revenue for the foreseeable future, for at least uh, a few years. Um, so we believe we've done the right thing in um, contacting DFAT um, with all the information we have about our shareholdings. The day that um, Mr Vexelberg was uh, designated on the sanction list. Um, our legal department are dealing daily with DFAT. I must say DFAT are being very responsive and saying they understand the seriousness of the situation. Um, I don't believe they've given us a um, definitive time frame on when they're able to respond, but I think they have indicated they will do it as quickly as they can. And I assure you, whatever we are advised to do by DFAT, and the Australian government, we will very happily comply with in full. That is Tim O'Grady from Origin Energy. Now, he also told this Senate inquiry that if the development of the Beedaloo goes ahead to production phase, most of the gas is actually likely to go to export markets. Senator, if the, um, our project goes to, to production, um, it'll be a stage development that would be very likely to supply gas locally into the Territory initially. Um, there are existing pipelines from near the basin into the eastern gas market, which requires more gas. It would be very likely to also supply gas into the eastern Australian gas market. 
But because of the nature of these projects, or our, speaking for our project, if it's developed, it's likely to be developed at scale and like the other large onshore gas projects uh, uh, in, in Australia, um, it's likely to have a significant amount of that gas being exported as yes. LNG. Tim O'Grady, he is General Manager of Government Engagement with Origin Energy. So this Senate inquiry, um, it's heard from a lot of people and it's now heard from Santos and Origin Energy on Friday, Empire Energy, uh, one of the other companies exploring for gas in the Beedaloo. It appeared before the inquiry last year. But Tamboran, a company that has a joint partnership with Santos and has been approved for a $7.5 million grant from this program, which this whole Senate inquiry is looking at, the $50 million grants program. Uh, that company, Tamboran, it, according to Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young, has refused to appear before the inquiry. Uh, the Green Senator, uh, she took Tamboran a little bit to task on Friday. Um, here's a bit of what she said to Santos's Tracy Winters. I think it, uh, it should be pointed out, um, uh, and I should just declare this as chair, that Tamboran was asked to come uh, to this hearing today. In fact, they've been uh, asked to engage with this inquiry for some time now. They continue to refuse. They've just been given a grant of uh, money from the federal government, so they are now for accountable to the Australian taxpayer and they are refusing to uh, comply and participate. Um, I, I, uh, as a committee, we will consider what we do with this information, um, but uh, seeing as you are here, Ms Winters, I just put it on record that it's not a good look uh, for that company uh, and I uh, suggest in relation to your association, Santos's partnership, we want to be very clear um, as to um, uh, how that is unfolding, given uh, this is a US company. They take Australian taxpayers' money and they don't think they have to appear at a parliamentary inquiry. It's pretty poor form. That is Greens Senator Sarah Hanson-Young speaking there at this Senate inquiry into public money being put towards fracking in the Beedaloo. Uh, I believe that is the last public hearing that that inquiry is due to, it was to hold um, and the final report, it's due down in April. It is 19 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. You're with me, Dan Fitzgerald. Hi, my name is Remy. I'm working at a tropical fruit farm out in the rural area of Darwin. We're a mango and dragon fruit grower with three different varieties, the red, white and yellow. And you're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio. Australian beef producers may have just been outmanoeuvred by their US competitors in the lucrative Japanese market. Australia has had a better deal than US for beef into Japan thanks to the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, uh, but an announcement just last week means that the US may have caught up fast. Simon Quilty, an analyst from Global Agritrans, says it's a huge development that may cost the industry in the long run? I think one of the most uh, serious developments in terms of trade and policy that we've seen in quite some time. North America has struck a deal with Japan that enables America now to expand 
the US beef market into Japan in coming years. So what does that mean, I suppose, in practical terms, Simon, for, for US beef and, and Japan, which is quite a big beef buyer, isn't it? Warwick, this is an incredible agreement. And really, it's all about righting the wrongs that was in place due to the Trump agreement back in late 2019 that came into effect in 2020. So what happened was that the Trump administration struck a deal with Japan that effectively removed the 12% difference in tariff between Australia and the US at the time, basically made the US so much more competitive than what it was into the Japanese market. But Warwick, at the time, there was a major shortcoming with that deal. And what it was, was it set what's called safeguard, which is the level at which beef that's exported into a market, if it was triggered, it would mean that suddenly the, uh, the cost of the duty would jump to 38.5%. Well, Warwick, they just simply set it too low back in 2019. And the end result was that we had two successive years of triggers being implemented and therefore restricting growth into Japan by North America. Warwick, it's a significant move. What does this mean for Australian producers? Well, it basically took away an enormous comparative advantage that we had into Japan. So under CPTPP, Australia, along with all the other members, had for this year, for example, access of around 637,000. And the US had only access of just 247,000. So effectively, what we do not use as part of our overall shared access, that that whopping 637,000, we... the Japanese government have gifted what isn't used to America and effectively said, you can use this because it's going to be spare. So obviously we're in a boom time for Australian cattle and beef prices at the moment, but long term, could this hurt the Australian industry? Well, that's exactly it. Unfortunately, over the last um, year or so, due to the enormous fall in production, out of Australia due to the herd rebuild, we've seen that Australia just simply couldn't capitalise on that increased access into Japan. It was always going to be, Warwick, all about the the future and the fact that when we did rebuild the herd, that Australia would be able to capitalise on that additional access into Japan, much more so than America. The net effect is, though, that now America is definitely on an even playing field has on, and that part of the market now has opened up to them dramatically. So the net effect is that Australia has lost that enormous advantage that we once thought we had. How quickly will things change? Warwick, the detail is yet to be clearly sorted out. The announcement was only made overnight by Catherine Tai, the US Trade Representative, and Tom Vilsack, the US Secretary of Agriculture. But it seems that the timing is very clear um, that it's the end of March, that the triggering of US beef into Japan was about to occur in the next week. So to answer your question, 
I think it will come in immediately. That is Simon Quilty from Global Agritrend, and he was speaking there with our own Warwick Long. Now, up next, uh, we're going to take a look into the take-home pay for seasonal workers from the Pacific uh, because there's been some workers who've claimed that they, at the end of a working week, have taken home just $100 net pay. Uh, A Senate inquiry has been looking into this issue. Uh, We will hear more after a bit of Hoodoo Gurus. Well, a Senate inquiry has heard that some seasonal workers are banking as little as $100 per week in take-home pay some weeks. And that's all in accordance with the federal government's Pacific Labor Schemes. Uh, National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan has been looking into this issue. Uh, Kath, uh, tell us, uh, how is it that workers from the Pacific coming to Australia might be left with such small net wages? Yeah, good day there, Dan. Well, it all sort of comes down to this thing called deductions. That's the industry term for it. And it basically relates to the costs that are recouped by the employer from the employee. And these are deductions for costs that have helped to bring that worker to Australia from uh, the Pacific or Timor. And we're seeing in some cases that workers are having costs of more than $600 a week deducted from their net wages to recover some of those costs like their airfares, the cost of their visas, cash advances, travel, accommodation, things like that. And that's allowed. It would appear that it is allowed. If you have a look at the federal government's guidelines for the seasonal worker program, which were last updated in just September of last year, it actually sets no floor in the net wages. There's absolutely nothing to say that workers should be given even $100 a week. And we use this example of $100 a week because it came up in that Senate inquiry into job security, which you just mentioned. But that's because the labour hire firm, which is Maydeck Australia, one of the largest labour hire firms and not-for-profit at that, it actually made the decision to set that $100 a week minimum and it says that the Federal Department actually signed off on Maydeck's plans to do that. And as I said, it's in line with the guidelines which say no minimum even needs to be set and there could in fact be workers who are receiving less than $100 a week in take-home pay. Do you have any idea of just how widespread this issue is? We actually don't know, but if we look at Maydeck Australia, in the last two years, it's had something like 3,800 employees that it's helped bring to Australia on the seasonal worker program. Now, we know that it made a company policy to ensure that workers had at least $100 a week. Um, And of course, these costs are recovered in the first 12 weeks of the employer's employee's employment. Um, you know, these are big costs up front. And we know with COVID in some cases, it's relating to um, the private charter of flights, not just everyday flights. That, that So the costs might be a little bit higher. Um, 
but if we take the example of two of the workers who gave evidence to the Job Senate inquiry, uh, two workers from Samoa in their first 12 weeks of employment, um, between them there were five weeks when they each received as little as $100. Now, keep in mind, not every week looks the same when you're um, picking fruit on an Australian farm. There were some weeks when the hours worked were less, some weeks when it was more, obviously due to seasonal variation, market conditions and things like that. But I understand that across the seasonal worker program, uh, employees are on average, um, do something um, more than 30 hours a week. And so um, across at least five weeks between two workers, we know they received as little as $100 take-home pay. And if you're coming all the way across the Pacific to Australia to earn money for your family, yeah, imagine you'd be pretty disappointed just to take home $100. Well, I should also point out, Dan, that the workers do need to sign off um, to say that they agree to have these deductions to pay back the costs of things like that cash advance, like their airfare. But that inquiry really did hear from workers who said that they expected they would be um, earning a, a lot more, they would have a lot more money to send home to their families. And in the case of one worker from Samoa, um, it really it stood out to me. Uh, he had lots of children. He had his parents to support and his wife back home. And he said they were calling him complaining, saying, what are you doing with the money? We thought you would be sending more back. And you can sort of... Um, you could just feel for him that this is not what he'd expected when he was in Samoa. And perhaps um, that's the, the circumstance of lots of workers who come here, particularly in that first 12 weeks when the deductions are significantly higher. After the first three months, it tends to drop back a little bit, but we know that employers are still making deductions for things like transport and accommodation. Now, the federal government is due to hand down its budget tomorrow evening. Mm. Uh, you'll be in the lockup pouring over all of the numbers tomorrow. Um, are you expecting any big ticket items for agriculture? I think that there'll be um, a little bit of money given it is heading into a federal election. When it comes to ag, I think things to look out for will include biosecurity announcements. We've already seen tax incentives for things like carbon farming. And just this morning, there's been an announcement in relation to uh, uh, to RDCs, a new set of guidelines that should set the way that uh, RDCs engage with um, stakeholder groups. Of course, these are the research and development corporations that are part funded by government and part funded by industry levy. So I guess a lot of people will be keen to have a say on, on how that rolls out. We'll keep an eye out for your coverage uh, tomorrow evening. Thanks for your time, Kath. Thanks, Dan. We could all do with a good laugh, right? This year's Melbourne International Comedy Festival is here. Get me in there, you know. Hosted by Steph Tisdale and featuring some of comedy's biggest names. Don't answer that. <laughs> With all the rib-tickling, jaw-dropping, side-splitting gags you could wish for. Wrong choice of phrase, but we'll go with that. Melbourne International Comedy Festival. The Gala. Well wasted. Um... This Wednesday night from 9.30 on ABC TV or log into stream on ABC iView. Well, conservationists are calling for tighter regulations to protect scalloped hammerhead sharks from overfishing in Northern Territory waters. Uh, this species, it's not on the endangered list in Australia, but that is under review by the federal government. Nadine Silver reports. Each year, Australian fisheries can harvest up to 200 tonnes of the scalloped hammerhead shark. 
While the shark has some recognition internationally as an endangered species, its status is under review by the federal government. We're hoping that the endangered scallop hammerhead will get the protection it deserves, and this will mean that it's a fully protected species. This deckhand was working on a commercial boat last year, licensed to work in the territory's offshore net and line fishery in the Timor Sea. He was alarmed by the volume of hammerheads he processed. Just, it shocked me, hey, like, I didn't want to throw any part of that. I didn't even want that to happen, you know? You know, you're dropping a kilometre of net out in the water, so whatever comes up in that net can be potentially sold to the market. This apex predator's mallet-shaped head helps it see and smell its prey, but it also makes it vulnerable to gillnets. And last year, they were the fishery's fifth most common bycatch. Yeah, a lot of the sharks that were coming in were sold, you know, six bucks a kilo or whatever it was, and that's being sold as what I believe is flake. In Australia, there's no legal obligation to name the species of shark meat when it's sold. But one guideline says flake should only refer to gummy shark and rig. The Territory government says it's aware fishery species are often incorrectly named, but that the total catch of hammerhead sharks is tightly monitored. If the scalloped hammerhead becomes endangered under Australian law, it would become a no-take species. And there are some measures, like cameras on boats, conservationists have been pushing for in the meantime. What we have to do is, is when a scientifically determined limit is reached and too many die, the fishing stops altogether to enable the animal to recover back to healthy numbers. The federal government is due to finalise its review by the end of April. Nadine Silva, ABC News. And in a response to that story, a, a spokesperson for the Department of Industry said that the offshore net and line fisheries bycatch is within the Northern Territory's proportion of the national catch limit. Additionally, the department has conducted a national stock assessment for scalloped hammerheads that indicates recent low catches of this species has made it unlikely that they are overfished in Northern Territory waters. That is uh, a spokesperson for the Department of Industry. If you want more on that story, uh, you can find that online at ABC News. Hi, I'm Robert Hall from Packfresh Handling. We handle and export fresh produce from the Northern Territory to the rest of the world, and you're listening to The Country Hour. Now, we are rapidly approaching the one o'clock news, but just before we do do so, I want to give a little plug to our podcast. Uh, It was a big week for the Country Hour last week and cattle producers across the Territory and that all culminated in the NTCA's annual conference on in Darwin. If you missed any of that conference, you can catch up with all the main points on the Country Hour's podcast from Friday. Matt Brand was presenting live from that conference. We heard from all sorts of people like the President David Connolly, the Ag Minister Nicole Madison, and a bunch more people talking about lumpy skin disease, cattle prices and a lot more. If you want to catch up on that program, just search in your phone on your podcast app for Northern Territory Country Hour and look for Friday's episode. It's one o'clock now. I'll speak to you in five minutes. I'm Cameron Berryman from Wild Barra Fisheries. We've got vessels fishing all over the northern waters bringing in wild-caught barramundi. You're listening to The Country Hour. G'day there and welcome to the second half of the Country Hour. My name is Dan Fitzgerald. G'day to everyone tuning in via our podcast. Uh, we've still got plenty to come 
for you in this half hour, including a look at some extra funding that's just been splashed out for the NBN. And it's a lot of it is aimed at improving internet speeds and connection in the bush. What will that all mean? Uh, we'll be taking a look very soon. And a ranger group out in Arnhem Land has had a very successful season out in the wetlands collecting crocodile eggs. Like one day we went in and it was like one and the next minute two, three, like, and we keep walking and we found more and more. And we couldn't believe it. Like they were all in the same area where we locate the one first, yeah. Yeah, that story is coming to you before one thirty today. But right now, let's head to the Weather Bureau to find out what's been happening outside. We've got Rebecca Patrick at the Bureau today. How are you, Rebecca? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Dan. That's the way. Um, let's just cast our mind back over the weekend. Um, the 72-hour rainfall figures, were there, was there much to report? Um, highest total was for Gove Airport with 123 millimetres. Um, elsewhere, most of the, the rainfall was across the top end um, and extending down uh, through the through the Gregory District. Um, other high-ish totals, McMinn's Lagoon, um, 48 millimetres, um, Dumb and Mary uh, came in with 71 for the for three days, so that's not too bad either. Um, Jabiru, 41 millimetres. So um, a little bit uh, of hit and miss thunderstorm activity. Um, unfortunately, around the Catherine and Carpentaria district, there was a little bit of rain, but not nothing too heavy. I think um, highest sort of around that 15 millimetre in a couple of places um, Bullman and Nooker and places like that, but not too much around Catherine. Yeah, I know friends in Catherine have just been very disappointed with this wet season. Um, is there any chance of some more rain to come? Unfortunately, this week it's it's not looking good. We are seeing um, some dry air pushing into the top end uh, during the week. That's going to be making those showers and storms uh, even more isolated through the week. Uh, today, probably better chances are across the western top end. Catherine just really on that edge of of a chance um, for for today. Um, and also extending across the the north coast of the top end, um, but really those those areas are only going to be contracting um, further west and further north over um, the course of the week. So unfortunately, not too much good news for this week. And also expecting to see some pretty warm temperatures um, out there, particularly in the um, those inland parts of the top end, with Catherine getting up to about. 38 degrees um, throughout the week. Uh, further south through the Territory, um, pretty sunny skies through those central districts. Uh, Barclay um, shouldn't be seeing too much in the way of um, activity. Uh, could be a bit windy at times during the week. Uh, Tennant Creek expecting to get up to about 36 degrees and expecting those similar temperatures for the next few days. Um, and across the south, uh, temperatures are about average for March, so in those low 30s. Um, but a little bit of a change coming uh, towards the end of the week, some cooler air pushing northwards. 
Yeah, okay. So um, some, some cooler mornings ahead for, for Alice Springs? Yeah, Alice has actually had some, some quite cool mornings uh, this morning and, and yesterday, temperatures dropping to close to 10 degrees, which is pretty unusual for March. Um, haven't seen temperatures that cold since in March, since about 2019. So, um, yeah, a little bit unusual for March, those temperatures, um, but should be warming up slightly over the next few days with those minimums. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned, a, a cooler change to those maximum temperatures across the weekend. Yeah, okay. Um, anything else we need to be aware of today? Um, no, um, probably not too much in the way of severe weather. Expected maybe just a little bit gusty with any storms that form through the week with that dry air around that tends to, to help with a little bit of gustiness. Yeah, okay. Radio, well, thanks for the update, Rebecca. No worries. Thanks, Dan. Is Rebecca Patrick there at the Weather Bureau. It is 10 minutes past one. Yeah, g'day, it's Greg Owens here. Uh, recently retired from NT Farmers, but still hoping to be a big part of our farming community in the north. And you're listening to the NT Country Hour. Well, you might have seen a few headlines last week about better internet for the bush, care of a $750 million federal cash splash to boost regional internet speeds and connect more homes to NBN Wireless. To find out what this was all about, Matt Brand caught up with Robert Hardy. He's the head of Segment for Agriculture at NBN and got him to explain this announcement and what it means for NT cattle producers. A lot of that upgrade relates to um, increasing the fixed wireless footprint, doubling the, the distance from which uh, people living in the fixed wireless zone can, can access that technology. But the big change for people living particularly in northern Australia are the changes that are coming to the SkyMuster uh, satellite network. Which a lot of NT cattle producers are on. What's happening there? So under the changes that we announced earlier this week and will take effect from about the middle of this year, we're shifting the peak time, which currently operates between 1 and 7 a.m. Uh, the off-peak time, sorry, from 1 to 7 a.m. is now going to apply from midnight to 4 p.m. So during that period of time, if uh, if you're uh, using a, a VPN or watching YouTube or, or Netflix... Or School of the Air. Or School of the Air, any of these sorts of things that, that might otherwise have been metered are now going to be unmetered. So the only time your data allowance will be metered uh, will be between 4pm and midnight, which is a really, really big change and will have great benefits for people living in regional areas. Right, so the morning muster school of the air will now be on in a time where the data will not be metered. That's right, but obviously people who are doing educational purposes were, were already uncovered under the Sky Muster Plus arrangement. So what I'd encourage your listeners to do if they're not sure which service they're on, Sky Muster Plus uh, offers the vast majority of its uses in an unmetered fashion. They should speak to their retail service provider to find out whether they're on Sky Muster Plus or Sky Muster. It's a really easy change, but the benefit of being on Sky Muster Plus is that so much of what they do will not be metered when it comes to accounting for the data allowances and things like that. I know your team's looking to do a trial in the Northern Territory around portable capability. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, happy to. Uh, late last year, MBN launched a comms on the move uh, 
um, solution, which basically means we can put a satellite dish literally in the middle of anywhere. It, it packs up in a box and you can move it and deploy it into, into all sorts of locations. Um, we've uh, spoken to the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association to work with their future network to find an opportunity to trial one of these solutions while mustering is taking place in, in Northern Australia. There's huge benefits for industry. They can be gathering data at the point of muster. They can keep their staff connected. Uh, and it also means that um, you know, the things that we otherwise might take for granted, in my case living in a city, but for people living in rural areas, um, the opportunity is right there for them to get connected um, as they should expect to be able to do. What would that look like on my cattle station if I signed up? Um, look, uh, there's lots of different ways this can be. It could literally be a, a satellite dish um, fenced off sitting on the ground or it could be a more rugged cage. We're looking at all sorts of different solutions. But, but it's literally pack it up, stick it in a box, take it away and set it up again, point it towards a satellite and, uh, and you'll have connectivity. I mean, the NBN network is available right across Australia. There is not one part of this country that you cannot get access to the NBN network, either through the fixed line, fixed wireless or satellite connection uh, solution. Uh, so we know that the, the satellite is capable of supporting agriculture across northern Australia. There's a $15 billion opportunity uh, from internet-enabled digital agriculture by 2030. Our network is able to support that, that development and, importantly, help move industry towards its $100 billion goal by the end of the decade. So a ringer mustering cattle out the back of the VOD could potentially zoom mum and dad to show them what they're doing. Absolutely. And they can put me on the call as well. I'd love to see what they're up to. Yeah, that sounds like some pretty cool tech. Hey, that was uh, Robert Hardy. He's the head of segment for agriculture at NBN Co. Now, Sarah Cook is the manager of Aileron Pastoral, about 130 k's north of Alice Springs. Uh, she's also the former NTICPA president and as part of that role has been long campaigning for better internet connectivity in the bush. Uh, she sat down with Hugo Ricard-Bell, who asked her well, just what the internet is like at her place at the moment. It's pretty good. Um, over the last five years, it's improved, but um, we still experience uh, dodgy Zoom meetings and team meetings, um, and it does go down at different times. So it's not 100% reliable, and it can always be improved. So this announcement that MBN's getting a big chunk of funding and a bit of a spruce up in the Territory, how does that make you feel as a pastoralist? I'm bloody excited. I'm really excited that um, it's been recognised nationally that the best thing that we can do for the bush is improve our connectivity. Um, I believe that on a business level, on a socialising level, on a family level, whatever, we need better connectivity in the bush. I think it can be argued at times that our connectivity is equal to um, what they receive in urban areas and and it's probably true because um, no internet is reliable, I suppose. But if we really want to get serious about developing our industries and attracting people to remote and very remote regions, we need to ensure that our, our connectivity is always as best it can be. From a parent's point of view who's had a son go through school of the year, what, what will this may, mean for remote families? One of the disadvantages, I suppose, if we could say it's a disadvantage, of educating your children on distance education is that they're not connecting with their friends on a social level um, or even in the classroom um, during the day like you would as an urban child. So um, the better the internet connection, the better the opportunity for the teacher to, to to leave the camera on and for the students to see each other in the classroom so um, it's just it's only positive is that is that something that they would do to save 
yeah, save connectivity, turn the camera off so yeah. you're talking to a black screen. Yeah, so it's all about bandwidth, um, I think, um, Hugo. So um, if things are a little bit dodgy and one teacher has to um, transmit out to a whole bunch of children, um, they make sure that all the children can at least hear and they won't always be able to see and that's based on bandwidth. And um, So if we can improve the bandwidth, of course, there is more opportunity that they can see each other. If we were to just put the, um, I guess, the partial operations hat on, what what will it mean for the business side of, of uh, agriculture? Um, well, it's one thing to have um, better internet, but we want more of it. We want, when I say more of it, we want it spread more broadly. Of course, that is going to help us in a big way, um, but. Um, we need to be able to do business and everybody's using Teams or Zoom or whatever nowadays. So I need to be able to attend a meeting and have a conversation without worrying that my words are going to be distorted or not heard. Um, and I just think on a business level, it's everybody considers it to be normal in urban uh, business sense. So we need it to be normal for us as well. And uh, another announcement that they did make is they're going to be trialling a portable dish for stations to sort of take around with them and give them service anywhere on their property. Where can you see a use for that? So you can just picture, right, um, a lovely starry night and the fire's crackling away and in the distance you can hear some wieners mooing or whatever and everybody's on their phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's a spoiler, isn't it? Yeah, uh, that's a, that's an yeah. interesting angle. We yeah. don't want it. <laughs> there we go. That's my thoughts. Yeah, that is Sarah Cook there. She's from Aileron Station. It's just about uh, 130 k's to the north of Alice Springs. And she was speaking there with our Alice Springs rural reporter, Hugo Ricard-Bell. Yo, my name's David Mariela Yunapingu. I work at the Ranger and uh, culture advisor taking all the kids, learning on country, and you're listening to the Country Hour. Twenty past one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald. You're on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. We're on Channel 25 on your television. We're on the podcast. We're on the ABC Listen app. We're also on the web. There's a whole bunch of ways to keep listening to us. I just want to quickly mention some uh, resources news now. The managing director of Core Lithium has resigned and will step down from the role before the end of this year. Now, Core Lithium, it is the company that has just started construction on a lithium mine about 80 k's to the southwest of Darwin. A statement from the company said Stephen Biggins was resigning for personal reasons. Uh, I'll share a bit of his statement with you. It reads... Core is in a perfect position to reach its next stage of growth as a lithium producer and I feel it is the right time to step down as managing director and pass the torch on to the right person to lead Core in this next stage. That is Stephen Biggins there from Core Lithium. Uh, He's been with the company for over a decade or so and has resigned and will step down from the role before the end of 2022. text here from Rod on 0487 
Um, just regarding our story about NBN and upgrades there, uh, Rod writes, the latency on Skymaster makes it less useful than the old ADSL. You can't bid on live, online live auctions. It's too slow. Furthermore, the frequency it uses was known for nearly a century not to work properly in heavy moisture levels, e.g. heavy rain and cloud. Rod says it's a waste of time even switching it on in those conditions. Thanks for your thoughts there, Rod. Now up next, we're going to head out into the floodplains and wetlands of Arnhem Land where an Indigenous ranger group has out been collecting crocodile eggs and they've had a pretty good run at it. Uh, but first, a bit of Stephen Pigram. Stephen Pigram there with the Crocodile River. Let's head to Arnhem Land now, where one ranger group has collected a record amount of crocodile eggs for their group this season. Uh, over the past few months, the Bowenunga Rangers have harvested around 850 eggs from nests all out through the wetlands, which are then put in incubators and sent to croc farms around Darwin. Uh, ranger Jonah Rye says it's been a very busy season for the team. Oh, well, the croquet harvest season was really good. Like, you know, the highest numbers that we got this year better than like last year last couple of years this year was really really big year for us boys collecting crocodile eggs so you've collected you know a record harvest um yep was that you had more people or uh yeah we we had we had more boys we was all doing teamwork and like yeah and driving through and walking yeah so it, it was much much more easier this year, and like us rangers, we all just all focus on the collecting eggs, you know, getting over and done with. Yep. You also mentioned uh, that there were a lot more nests that you were finding this year. Can yep. you take me through yep. that? Yeah, there were like a um, big mob of nests. Like we were shocked too, like we seen nests right there, nests, not a nest on the next, you know. Like one day we went in and it was like, one and the next one, two, three, like, and we keep walking and we found more and more. And we couldn't believe it, like, they're all in the same area where we locate the one first, yeah. Is that common for you or was that different this year? Um, well, like I said earlier, like, because uh, big, um, the rain last year, like, you know, had a good rain and, you know, good grass growing and, like even better than like I said last year, you know, like we had more grass and easy for the croc to collect and make more nests and like and that's why we talk amongst each other, like we just get this job over and done with so we get a lot of boys and we yeah, started collecting them. Yeah, I can I can imagine you might feel a bit nervous going when the when oh. there's so many croc nests around and you're you're wading through. Do you, is it dangerous? Oh, yeah, it is, like, dangerous and scary at the same time walking in the water, but, you know, if you have, like, eight boys, it'll be really good for, for you, you know? Yeah, like, nice and safe to yeah. Did you have any challenges with the, the harvest this year? Oh, challenges, I, yeah, well, yeah, every single day. <laughs> yeah, since when, the, like, COVID came, you know, 
made everything hard for us to go out to our stations, yeah, to do our job, yeah. And but we managed to go through it and yeah, made it through, yeah. Now the egg harvest has wrapped up for the year. Uh, what's next for the rangers? Well, we start doing springs, and then now when the rain stop, and after we go to ABR station spray, and now we got access, um, access to go to um, our station now because when, when the COVID, like, it's good now, and yeah, we, could, we we now we can go do our job properly, go in our stations. And when rain stop, we're doing early burning now. Yeah, soon. But my favorite job of being a ranger is doing croc eggs. That's my favorite job. <laughs> yeah, that is Jonah Ryan. He's from the Barwonunga Rangers, based in Manangrida. And he's speaking there with Max Rowley. And that's it for the Country Hour for today. Thanks a lot for your company. And Matt Brand will be back on your radio tomorrow at 12.30.